0: Good morning again. Um, I think I know everybody here, um, but if not, my name is Micah. Micah Childs, and um, we'll be again in Genesis this morning. Um, Michael Neal, thank you, Michael, for teaching the last weeks, and uh, and I haven't listened to all of them yet, so I got to got to catch up. But uh, my family and I were out of town for. Uh, a number of weeks, some of it um, business and some of it not business, but we had a good time. Um, but uh, I'm honored and thankful to be back here t- again teaching uh, in Genesis. This morning we're going to talk about men, women, and marriage. Um, but before we do that, let's let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to be together around Your Word. Uh, Give me uh, the ability to uh, read, think, and explain. Keep me away from error, and when I do speak something that's untrue or unhelpful, just take it away Um, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us all to hear your word, understand it, and um, be convicted and be encouraged and comforted by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, um, so this week, I was listening to a—this is not about marriage, but it has to do with Genesis. I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan. I don't know if anyone knows who Joe Rogan is, but I listened to his podcast. I think—do you realize that YouTube is an amazing thing? But but Joe Rogan, I think, is now the the most listened-to interviewer in the history of the world. I think he's now, at this point, probably overtaken Larry King— as that, as having that distinction. He has a podcast on, um, or he has a YouTube show where he does like three, three hour long interviews every week, it's, it's amazing, they talk about all sorts of stuff. But anyway, he was interviewing uh, Brian Green, a uh, quantum physicist this week, and Brian Green has written a lot of books. Uh, in that world, he's, he is a scientist, uh, he's very academic, he's a mathematician, uh, but he 's also got a charismatic personality he 's a good writer and a good speaker, so he kind of bridges worlds and tries to bring it to bring his uh, gospel or evangelism of quantum physics to the rest of us. But it just struck me um, the world view and what he was saying, not so much the science because i we're not I thought it was fascinating, and we have so much to learn about quantum. F- physics and quantum mechanics, we're just, God's creation is unending. It's just, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's, it's amazing, the this, this sort of stuff that, that scientists are learning. But the worldview that's attached to so much of it, it's just like the 180 opposite of the book of Genesis. And so Brian Greene was talking about uh, quantum physics has to do with uh, quantum realities, the, you know, the, small, the protons, the smallest parts of creation, we're just learning more and more about this stuff. And, and he was just blown away. He was just talking about how, how he's just blown away, blown away by the reality of the, the same stuff that makes up the stars, the same stuff that makes up this table, the same stuff that makes up, um, um, you know, whatever, is what makes up us as, as humans. And we're just no different than any other uh, reality that exists. Um, and, and he specifically said, he, he said, we don't need any sort of outside um, recognition or meaning or blessing from some sort of outward outside uh, deity or, or person or anything we can just be amazed that we're part of all part of this one uh, one he doesn't use the word creation obviously and and he was he said we don't need all that stuff and and maybe for him in his moment he maybe doesn't feel like he needs that but I think I think he's totally, 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 and according to God's Word, totally missing the point about what God says about being made in the image of God. We do absolutely need, psychologically, physically, and in every other way, the distinction of being made in the image of God. And I thought of that verse uh, from St. Paul in Romans 1, that they worship the creation instead of the Creator. And that's exactly what he was doing. Now, he's smarter than me. He talks circles around me. I wouldn't debate him for a minute in any kind of public forum. It'd be fun to talk one-on-one. But uh, that's what he's doing. Worship the creation rather than the, rather than the creator. Um, it's easy, though, to, to talk about those sinners out there. They're all messed up. They don't get Genesis or, or St. Paul. So... Today, we're going to talk about marriage. <laughs> come, right, come right back to us, doesn't it? We, no one escapes that. We, we maybe have our, uh, have our creation story down correct and the image of God reality uh, uh, correct, but uh, yeah, welcome to marriage. It, that's where it all falls apart, isn't it? I'm joking. Only only sort of joking. Um, <clears throat> So I told you I would bring uh, books that have shaped me uh, on this area uh, that we'll be discussing any week that I teach. Um, I used the English Standard Version Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. I don't have it here. I've got it on my iPad. Um, so that's one book that really helped me, the study notes uh, with the text um, of the Bible. Um Another one is uh, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. It's also on my iPad, so I don't have a physical copy of it here, but it's Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, Another book is by Dan Allender called The Intimate Mystery, Creating Strength and Beauty in Your Marriage. It's a great book. I uh, recommend it. And when I do talk about recommending books or books that influence me, it doesn't mean I recommend every single line in the book. That's just the qualification I have to make. And another one is by Kevin DeYoung. It's, uh, I hate this title. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. But anyway, it's a pretty good book. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Uh, we're going to talk about um, uh, matters of sex and purity uh, later in another week. But he had some really good stuff to say about Genesis 1 and 2 here about uh, male and female. So I used this book some. It's, it's a really good book. What does the Bible really teach about home? It's so cheesy. I mean, couldn't you like, they should have come up with something better, but because calls the, the contents um, pretty good. Okay, as we think about um, men, women, and marriage, uh, it's a little um, nerve-wracking to stand up here and talk about such things um, because issues of uh, gender and identity and roles and equality and, Marriage and divorce, I mean, these are some hot-button hot issues. And, you know, when you got, what's, you know, 30 people in this room or whatever, I'm going bound to say something that's going to ruffle somebody's feathers at some point. But that's okay. We're here to, first of all, we're here, all of us, to sit under God's Word, not ultimately, definitely not under my teaching. But as we listen to God's Word, we can learn together what God is saying to us and for our good. But as I was thinking about men, women, and marriage, um, and reading again, especially Genesis one through three here, um, there's three basically foundational texts I think for this idea of men, women, and marriage. And as with so much of Genesis, it's it's to the core. It speaks to the core questions of our existence. Uh, Where do we come from? What is our purpose? Uh, How do we relate to other people? How do we relate to God? What went wrong? What do we do about it? And of course, we know as Christians what has God done about it for us. But the first text is Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 31. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read it. And if you have a Bible, uh, read along uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And again, men, women, and marriage, three foundational texts or verse, a set of verses. Uh, and I've kind of titled this God, um, God has spoken in these three foundational texts. And this first one is about creation and purpose. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So that's the account of the sixth day of creation. Um, The first thing uh, I think is so important is is what uh, Michael talked about. um, Was it last week? The image of God. Uh, Again, I know there were three weeks in there that I wasn't here. So uh, I think it was last week where Michael talked about the image of God. So I won't go over all of that. I just want to point out here that male and female both created in the image of God. It says in verse 27... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So um, this is a reality of what God did in creation and what God has set up as a pattern that we humans are created male and female. Just to put it bluntly, there are two genders. That's what God said and did. Now, that's a, I know that, again, that's a hot-button topic in our Society and in our uh, current uh, discussions in politics and morality and um, entertainment and and everywhere, but but God has spoken in Genesis, and we'll see later that Jesus absolutely restated this first and just assumed it as uh, the of of the reality of creation. Now you might say, and there is a million questions. Well, what about this or what about that? Well, sin did enter the world in Genesis three, so. Creation was this way, this is the way God set it up, and something broke, and it really is broken. And so, when we see these um, um, issues of uh, identity um, dysphoria and, and all of these things, uh, I don't, I'm of the opinion that the vast majority of these people aren't making this stuff up. We're all broken. So, we move toward people with compassion and love. But we also at the same time hold God's word for what he said and the way he's created male and female. And that's the way uh, we as individuals and that's the way we in community are best going to function and, and love one another. God created us male and female. but He gave us a couple of jobs here. He told us to have dominion. Um, He had dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Um, Have dominion. We are, I think, from God's Word, the pinnacle of God's creation. And having dominion over creation in no way, in no way means that we are to treat His creation in any kind of destructive way but it does mean that we are, have been given the creation as something to, to rule over as a, uh, in a way that benefits us and one another uh, and utilizes God's creation to take care of ourselves, our families, and our communities. We are not a blight or a cancer on the earth. But we're here to have dominion and care for the earth. And I think this was the pattern that God set up. And everything I say here about the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2, of course it's going to be broken in Genesis 3. It doesn't mean we give up the pattern, but it means that we recognize that brokenness is coming to the world and brokenness, most importantly, has come within me. But God said to have dominion, to care for. And He says that He has given every plant um, yielding uh, seed as food. And later in Genesis, we'll also see uh, that, that, that meat is also being used and given by God for food. Um, another thing that God says here is to be fruitful and multiply. Um, and this is in relation, obviously, to Adam and Eve and to uh, married couples uh, that we are to uh, reproduce and fill the earth with image bearers. And this glorifies God, and this allows the cultivation and flourishing of civilization when we honor this, be fruitful, and multiply. And God said it was very good. This is where God says very good. God said all sorts of, uh, in, in, in the first five days, when he ended the days, he would say, and it was good. He says here on the sixth day that it was very good. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the first foundational text I'm seeing here for men, women, and marriage is this uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. We are made the image of God. We are made male and female. We have been given the command Uh, We've been given the opportunity, we've been given the responsibility, we've been given the privilege to have dominion and to feel the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And God said, this is a very, very good plan, and I am very, very happy with my creation. Um, I think everything I just said um, is is not the assumption of, of the vast majority of our culture and society. That doesn't mean we lash out in anger. It doesn't mean uh, that we necessarily become Christian activists. There might be a place for that at times. But it it means that we recognize the brokenness of this world, and that begins with each one of us. And we reach out to our community, to our uh, friends and our neighbors in love, explaining God's plan. But we do it in love and in humility. All right, the second text is from Genesis 2, and this is about marriage and completion. Now, we're kind of zooming in here. We had sort of a a big picture of of, uh, male and female and sort of the relationship that was formed here. But now we're going to zoom in a little bit tighter, if we could think of it that way, and we're going to talk more specifically about marriage and how the man and the woman um, are made to complement one another. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man then the man said this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and here's a, 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 the key verse therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Um, this is such an important picture of what God, God's plan for the man and the woman in marriage, um, is. Uh, I want to focus on three ideas. This is uh, from verse 24. I'll, we'll say a little bit more. You know Again, sin is going to kind of uh, reverse this plan. Not from God's perspective, but from from the reality of the way we act. Sin in Genesis 3 will kind of reverse all of this. And we'll talk about that in a moment, because we could we could we could go over more of it here as a positive, but I'll just I'll save that till we get to the, the negative and sort of look at it on the, the flip side of the coin. But for nail specifically, positively, as God's plan, therefore a man, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become. One flesh. There's three ideas here. Leaving, holding fast, and one flesh. This is the plan for marriage. Man and a woman in a covenant relationship. This, that's the idea of hold fast. In the book of Deuteronomy and in Proverbs and I think in Malachi also. I won't turn to those verses. Uh, but this idea of hold fast is in relationship to the, also to the word Covenant. And so you have this idea of holding fast or covenanting together. But leaving, holding fast, in one flesh. God's plan for marriage. So when a man and a woman commit themselves together, they commit to leave. To leave the past. Now, in this culture, leaving obviously didn't mean physically leaving because they weren't mobile. Many times the families... Not many times... Almost all the times, I mean if you think about it when Abraham left his father's house, that was a that was a big deal in Genesis chapter twelve but in this culture in the vast majority of cultures, I think uh, in my limited study, the vast majority of cultures uh, f- extended families have lived together, so it doesn't necessarily mean physically leaving and and in some cultures it didn't necessarily mean uh, economically or financially leaving because so much of it was done communally, taking care of one another, especially in agricultural settings, which has, again, been the vast majority of, of uh, human history. But, so what does leave mean here? I think it's cutting off allegiance to what is past, primarily parents, grandparents, other siblings. You're, you're stopping allegiance there and you're transferring allegiance To your spouse, and specifically here, because men are given this leadership role, um, and the naming of the animals, and also the and here of the 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 taking the initiative to leave father and mother. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. It does. I don't think it means that the woman shouldn't leave too. I just think the text is again pointing out that man should take the initiative, the leadership here uh, to leave father and mother, to leave this. Uh, past allegiances. Now, uh, I've been married 22 years. Next Sunday, got married really young because I know I really look young right now. you are like 22 years? How could you? You only look, you only look 30. How could you be married for 22 years? <clears throat> uh, obviously, I don't look 30, but I'm not joking. It will be 22 years next Sunday. So I got married when I was 19, and Tiffany was 18 now um, this is being recorded and who knows who will listen to it so I have to be c- careful here but <clears throat> but I, I grew up in a home where my mother has a very strong personality and um, I never questioned whether or not I was loved or not but my mother set the tone and and uh, and it was very easy for me to to be a to have allegiance to her for numerous reasons, both functional and dysfunctional reasons. But it it didn't dawn on me at the time, but I never, so a lot of y'all had a college experience or getting out of the house before you got married experience. I never had that. I went from living at home to living with Tiffany like that. So lived at home the night uh, before I got married, lived with Tiffany the night after I got married. And I came from a home, again, like I said, with a, a very strong mother figure. A 19 year old guy, leave, it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, did not hand, I did not handle myself well. Um, and it was very, very difficult, and it caused so much pain. For me, and more importantly, it caused so much pain for my wife. And in many ways, it took us years to work through that and work out of that. Now, <clears throat> um, looking back at it, I actually have more compassion now for my past self than I did either at the time. Uh, at the time, I was just defensive. That's not. That doesn't count. <clears throat> um, Maybe let's say I have more compassion now than I for my past self, for my 19-year-old self, than I had 10 years ago for my 19-year-old self. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, because I, I've I've learned th- the reality of of going one night to the next night at 19 years old, and this psychologically leaving, um, this allegiance leaving. That's really that's impossible to do really well. And I dare any, I'm sure it's been done. Uh, I guess I'm making rationalizations and excuses now. But I I have compassion for myself because it looks so overwhelming to have pulled that off as a 19-year-old kid. Again, part of of the sin, isn't it? Um, And I won't give specific examples. I could. I could talk about it forever. But this is not about Uh, me or us, but it caused so much uh, frustration, damage, and hurt because I didn't leave. Again, it's not necessarily a physical leaving. Uh, In our society, and this is what I've done some premarital counseling, uh, and I also uh, have relationships with people through my work. It's interesting. I have a, a lot of different conversations with young people. And when, in our society, you should, as soon as possible, leave financially, too, because that, that gets really messed up and can cause a lot of hurts. So in some cultures, that wouldn't be as big of a deal. In our culture, I'm pretty, I feel pretty strongly that, that leaving financially and econo- economically is also very, very, very important. But again, it's really about allegiance, I think. And that would be cross-cultural Leave father and mother and hold fast. This is the idea of the covenant. We hold fast. We're committed. We make a promise for better or for worse uh, to our spouse. And both does it. They commit to leave. They commit to hold fast to make that promise. And they become one flesh. Now, uh, of course, uh, our... Uh, one flesh can mean emotionally. It, it obviously means physically, but the order here is so important. Um, the order of 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 leaving of of, of of this promise that comes together. You have to make a decision to leave. You have to promise to one another, and then becoming one flesh is so important. Now, um, uh, um, th- this this. Again, this is the pattern that God established that best uh, honors him and best serves us as his creation. But this one flesh, this again, when it comes to adultery, when it comes to uh, premarital sexual experiences, uh, none of this stuff puts you outside the love of God, but it causes hurt and resentment and struggles that God did not originally intend to be happening and all of us to some extent fall into it even if you're a really good person, we all have struggled with lust, either physical uh, lust, uh, especially maybe most more so for men or emotional lust and sometimes this might happen, might not happen more with ladies. but all of these are on this, this idea of breaking down that one flesh union. Again this is the way God, set His creation up to work. The third text um, is from Genesis 3, and I'm going to read Genesis 3, 7, and I'm going to relate it back to one verse, and then we'll go to Genesis three sixteen. Um, I know that Michael talked about sin entering the world, uh, and I don't want to skip over. Of course, the whole point was, if you eat of the fruit... You will surely die. So, when I'm when I'm talking about all these destructive things that come out of these of this sinful act and the sin that go on go, the ongoing sin in our lives and in our society, I'm not um, I'm not denying the, the aspect of guilt and judgment. That's real. That's that's just not what I'm focusing on right now. Uh, they did die, um, and they physically died, and without Jesus. Uh, we would have also eternal death. But in Genesis 3-7, this is a problem. After they ate of this um, fruit of the tree uh, because they were tempted and um, they played the victim card and blamed the snake and then the man blamed the woman and, you know, just, it's just a mess. Uh, it's like an episode of The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis 3 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you look at that verse in light of the verse we just read at the end of Genesis 2, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is this is world shattering. They were naked and not ashamed. They were naked physically, they were naked emotionally. They were naked. Uh, I would take this verse and and in their their innocence and their conscience, um, it truly was perfection. And they were not ashamed. They enjoyed one another, without any sort of uh, resentment, even unconscious resentment, any kind of, uh, of of dysfunction. You know, I I think, I've uh, the way I uh, seek to love Tiffany. Uh, I do it better or worse, but even when it's, I feel like I'm in the, the better kind of love, the more, the, the more self-sacrificial love, I really only have to reflect on it for about 20 seconds, and I can come up with like three evil motives for why I did this, that, or the other. It's like it never ends, and that's why we need the gospel every week. That's why we come here, or that's why we need it actually every, every day, because if, if you're a reflective person, you just can't get out of this mess. It's 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 always there. But the man and his the man and his wife in Genesis 2 were naked and they were not ashamed. But all of a sudden their eyes were opened. And it's almost like they had a consciousness awakening. Remember uh, the serpent said you will know good and evil? Uh, they thought they wanted to know good and evil. <laughs> it had just been better if they would have been, you know, ignorance is bliss when it comes to that. Uh, situation, but they were in in their conscience. Their eyes were open to the reality of evil, Un, like undiluted evil and and destruction. And um, you know, people who are um, self-destructive. You you ever met a person like that? You, you try to help them do something, and 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 then two weeks later, they it's. Not even their circumstances at this point are, are, are causing the destruction, but their choices. It's like they're addicted to self-destruction. All of this comes from this idea of having your eyes opened. And so immediately, what did they do? They became ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's the exact opposite. They were naked and not ashamed, and now they are, uh, their eyes are opened, and they see that they're naked. And so they try to cover themselves up, which is um, uh, a metaphor. Uh, I mean, I believe it actually happened, but it's also metaphorical teaching that we try to cover up our sin and our destruction by our own means instead of going to Jesus. And then uh, Genesis 3, verses 16 through 21, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." Till you return to the ground, for out of you you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then the man called his wife, his name Eve, because she was the mother mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Three ideas from this these these set of verses, sixteen through twenty-one. There's shame, which we've already uh, talked about. There's and then almost specifically focus on sin and brokenness, and. I've already related some ideas of this sin, uh, but let me do it more specifically if I, if I can here. And this is, uh, this is tricky stuff because uh, the Bible is giving like a, a big, um, it's like making sweeping principled statements that are true. But each one of our individual lives and realities are more specific. And the Bible's not necessarily making hugely specific claims here. And, of course, then you factor into it cultural uh, uh, realities, both positive and negative. It gets really complicated, but but I want to try to say what God is saying at the level that God is saying it. And in this verse here, verse 16, you shall des- Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is, the I think, the fundamental relationship problem, not only in marriage, but also in uh in uh, the reality of our society. <clears throat> the woman desire will be contrary to her husband. You know the men was, the man here, Adam was given the responsibility up in Genesis 2 to name the animals. He was there first. The woman was taken out of the man through the rib. Um, and you see here later that actually Adam names Eve because she was the mother of all living living. Uh, St. Paul and uh, Jesus uh, seem to uh, uh, confirm this pattern that the man is to take this leadership position. And we stink at it. And and l- women see this. And they're like, wait a minute, I could do this better. What the heck are you dumb men doing? And their desire is contrary to the man. And then the man... Um, and, and ultimately, I, I do think, um, you know, leadership is a, a, is, a, is a tricky thing. You get benefits of leadership. You also get the, the, the vast majority of the responsibility when you're a leader. Uh, and so then the man then in turn sees this and will go, you've you got to push this down. We can't have these women taking over our place. We've got to push this down. And this happens in marriages. I mean, think about how uh, your, your conversations with your spouse uh, works out so many times. Now, uh, some of it is uh, more under the surface. Some of it's more unconscious. Some of it is, is just out in the open. And then there are personality differences too. So I, I don't, I don't want to deny that. Some people uh, are, more, are more passive. Some people are, are louder. Some people are, are, are quiet but resentful. I mean, so there's all sorts of different, different patterns here. But I think this pattern of, <coughs> excuse me, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, happens. Now, now I said there were four different uh, resources that I used this week. Actually, the most important was the fifth resource, and that was my wife. And we talked about this, and she has a really good way of saying it. And I think I'm just going to read here what she wrote. Um, the woman's desire is for her husband's position. And it's linked to his ruling over her. Think of it like a, like a circle of destruction. Um, she desires his position because she feels that she is under tyranny. Of course, if someone is ruling over you, you'd want their position. These relational dynamics are a result of the fall. It's like a circle. The man is tyrannical and rules over and the woman then says, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. I need this position. But, of course, they're both power struggles. It's just deciding who gets the power. Uh, and so much of our society and so much of all relationships, when they go haywire and dysfunctional, act like this. Um, you know, uh, this is a little bit off, but, but it's, it's definitely applicable. Um, so much of 20th century philosophers... Uh, in this, what's been called postmodernism, where you deconstruct language and all language is just a power struggle, and, and what ends up happening, you see all of society as just one power group oppressing another uh, group, and that's, that's kind of the way that certain people, not all people, but certain people, that's the lens in which they see all of reality. And if that's the lens in which you see reality, the people who are being oppressed want to get out of it. But, of course, they have no other way to see reality except for power. So what will they do once they have the power? They'll just become the tyrant. So it's like a, it's like a, it's like a circle. Now, I'm not denying uh, oppression and people who are oppressed. That's the, that's the result of sin and the fall. But it's, it's the pattern. It's the dynamic. It's the desiring the place. It's the ruling over that is so, so destructive. It's at the heart of these relationships uh, that that are that are just evil, and we and it and it 's in each one of us it 's not just out there it's it 's in each one of us and it's and it 's the exact opposite of the Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and i hadn 't said that yet, but all of this dynamic of relationship is patterned after the Trinity because God is in communion with himself and i 'm running out of time here, so i 'll go ahead and say now that John seventeen actually says that the church, His people, those whom Christ loves, those who have repented and come to Christ, are now part of that relationship of the Trinity, that God loves us as He loves His Son. I don't even know what that, what that means. You mean we are loved by the transcendent God of the universe just like that inner Trinitarian love that happens between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's so much more that can be said, um, but I need to confirm this with the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus talking and being questioned about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. Um, quick, quick word about divorce. Um, I'm of the opinion um, that the church has totally messed up our ministry in our words about divorce. I think that the church has been really soft on teaching about the damages and the sinfulness of divorce. After the divorce happens, then we ostracize people and we treat them ugly. It should be exact opposite. The church should stand strong on the issue of divorce and say this is an abomination before the Lord. And then on the flip side, be ready to show grace, love, with open arms. I, I've never read anybody say that. That's just what I've thought about it. Because if you think about the way God created man and woman in the garden, and if you think about what, and we don't have time to get into it, but what Paul says and others, uh, Peter, um, the the... The marriage is a picture of the gospel. We will read that verse in Ephesians 5 here in about two minutes. Um, And so it's not that the gospel is dependent upon marriage. So in other words, if you get divorced, that doesn't mean you're outside the gospel. But it does mean to the world, marriage is a picture of God's love for us as His church. And so is marriage and divorce an important issue? In one sense, it couldn't be more important. It's the most important thing in the world. It's the most reported relationship in the world. Is the gospel dependent upon our ability to have good marriages? No. As a matter of fact, the gospel came just because we couldn't have a good marriage. We're sinners, in other words. But Jesus says, this is just Jesus' words of confirmation. From uh, He's asked about divorce, and he says in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, he answered, have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. This is Jesus' words. He's just confirming uh, uh, the book of Genesis. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then St. Paul uh, talks about the same thing, but he immediately then relates it to the gospel. You know, on the first week I was here, I talked about creation, fall, and redemption. We've talked about in Genesis 1 and 2 the created order of marriage. We talked about the fall in Genesis 3. And all of a sudden now they're full of shame. There's sin and there's brokenness. There's power dynamics. And I didn't even talk about the suffering. I don't have time. We've only got a minute to go. But the woman's going to have pain. And the men are going to have to uh, work the fields. This, is, this life, it's hard. It's like one hard thing after another. And it's not just sin, it's also the suffering that's attached uh, in, uh, as the result of the sin. But then, so that's the creation, the fall. And now we have the redemption. And Paul, St. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verses 31 and 33, therefore, he's quoting again from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But here's the point. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and His church. However, let each one love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he's making a little, hey, remember that whole dynamic problem? <laughs> Here's my word on it, says Paul. But, but I want to I focus on this uh, for the next 45 seconds. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, this most intimate relationship that God has created is a picture it's a gospel picture to proclaim to the world to to our neighbors <coughs> to the cosmos about God's love for his bride And then Revelation 19. So we go from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You read these words starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has been made herself ready. That's the church, the bride, the church has been made ready. It was granted her to to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to them, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at my feet, says St. John, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant, and you, are, and you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. So that's what the angel said. And then he says, worship God. for The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophecy. So we have the beginning and we have the end here. We have marriage being talked about. We have the male and female dynamic being made in the image of God. We have the pattern, we have the brokenness, and we have the picture of the gospel. The picture of the gospel that the gospel actually ends up redeeming. That's an amazing thought. Um, And then we will be married to our uh, groom for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. My time's up. Um, Thank you for coming. Um, I'm not even going to take questions, but I will take them up here after we go get kids. So thank you.